Welcome to Ira's Everything Bagel, where I talk with intriguing people about everything, their passions, pursuits, and points of view. COVID is still with us, but not at the pandemic levels that began to change our society not that long ago. We know what it was like dealing with shutdowns, masks, and isolation. My guest was on the front lines of the pandemic. Dr. Deval Desai is author of Burning Out on the COVID Frontlines, a doctor's memoir of fatherhood, race, and perseverance in the pandemic. It's published by McFarland and Company, and it's available on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, and all the usual places. And for everything about Dr. Desai, go to DevalDesaiMD.com and follow him on Instagram, X, LinkedIn, and Facebook. And Deval, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me, Ira. Well, this is clearly a personal book, one that doesn't spare us from the reality of dealing in a pressure cooker, which you were under, uh, both on the family side and on the professional side. Why did you decide to write this book? It was something I needed to do. It was some sort of catharsis that I really needed. I, I, I felt very uneasy you know, from surge to surge going through the pandemic, year, year and a half in, I realized that I had a voice that could be used, that could be powerful. And I had some media opportunities during the pandemic to share medical advice, you know, mitigation strategies, what's the best thing to do, what's it like in the hospital. And I decided that I wanted to take my story further. And I realized there was a lot of things I wanted to share because if all of this were happening to me, it was happening to many others also. It was a universal issue, not just in this country, and that's why I say universal, really around the world. And in the United States, it wasn't just the average person feeling it. It was, as you say, professionals such as yourself and the whole hospital system, the whole medical system, and dealing with, at the beginning, what you didn't know what to do. And eventually, obviously, vaccines were Develop. Can you give us some insight in terms of the impact first on your professional side? I know this is a big, tall order, but in essence, what the impact was for you professionally in your role in the hospital, and then obviously your role as a husband and as a father, because that had an impact as well, especially with young kids. Certainly. You know, professionally, it was one that was, this was the most challenging time in my career. There was the clinical care aspect when, especially at the beginning, Everything was changing, it felt, by the minute. And that's really not an exaggeration. You know, our isolation guidelines were changing. How do we use a depleting supply of PPE efficaciously? We've never recycled masks, and we were wearing these weeks on end. How do we communicate that to all of our frontline teams? How do I, as a leader of a physician group, keep my physicians unified? I mean, my territorially as a group, not that I own them in any way like that, because I treat them as colleagues and they treat me as a colleague. But how do we protect ourselves from everything? And it was very challenging because everything was too dynamic, too changing. There wasn't a consensus on how to treat. We had to make that consensus ourselves. really determine what we wanted to do as the best route. There weren't easy guidelines to follow, and if they were, they were constantly changing. So professionally, there was a lot of challenges like that. You know, physicians are used to healing. We are used to fixing. We are used to really trying to make everything come with a problem, and let's figure out a way to fix it and move on. This was one of those situations that was not fixable. 
not only clinically, but also operationally from a leadership standpoint. Fires were coming up day to day to put out, but you couldn't always extinguish them to make them completely go away. And that was frustrating. That really was. One of the big frustrations you write about in the book, the patients that didn't want to accept medical advice, especially, I mean, I'm sure you get that under normal circumstances, but here you have really an emergency. And yet you had patients coming into the hospital who didn't believe the course of action you prescribed or, or your staff prescribed. That has to be frust- not only frustrating, but maddening in the sense that you're trying to save people's lives, and yet they're coming in with preconceived notions about what will work and what will not work. And you gave some examples in the book about specific medicines that you prescribed, and they wanted some other medicine, and they felt that yeah. they were the doctor, you were not the doctor. That happened more than once to more than one of us. <laughs> I and, bet. Um, <clears throat> You know, it's very different from... I'm going to treat your cough. I'm going to treat your cough, Duvall. I'm just noticing it there. You may have a symptom of something here. Yeah, I have a flu. I had the flu last week, so uh, I'm doing better right now, though. It's not COVID. Um, (laughs) (laughs) No, but you know, the reality was is that it's very different from a patient who is not taking their insulin and is a bad diabetic because they're doing this to themselves. When patients are not following mitigation strategies or the right medical advice that we're recommending for COVID, it really had an impact on others or an implication to have a severe impact on others in the community. And maddening, you said, definitely maddening. Was I ever downright mean or rude to a patient? I don't think so, but I definitely lost compassion with a lot. And I strive myself on being a compassionate person who loves their patients and really wants to do the best for them. But there were several times during that phase of, you know, being perceived as I'm, I'm giving misinformation, I'm a conspiratist, I'm just putting out the government prophecy, whatever that, whatever the ideas were, whatever the ideas were, it was those notions that I really could not fix. And it had to turn very transactional saying, here's what we can offer. We're not doing this. You know, this is it. Take it. Or, you know, we got to move on to somewhere else here because there's nothing else we can do. And that was not satisfying. We don't go into healthcare to have these types of interactions, right? We don't go into healthcare to have these types of interactions with our uh, our patients. It's not that type of relationship. No, you want a caring physician. You don't want someone who's just, as you said, transactional. Here, here's your medicine, take it, and that's it. You want someone right. that really cares about the outcome. And you did, although some of your patients did not. Did you ever roughly get an estimate of the number of people you treated and your staff treated that were opposed to your treatment? In other words, percentage-wise, was it 25%, 30%? Was it up that high? Percentage-wise, it'll be challenging. I will say it's not the majority. It's not the majority. But you have to remember, even one or two patients like that in a week can be so taxing, it will weigh you down. It will weigh you down. Out of 16 patients I'm seeing in the hospital today, if one is like that, that can derail my day. Because they take a lot more time. And even with that, they take a lot more energy. So it's just that energy you're not used to giving, energy that you don't have to give. You're seeing 14 other patients who are suffering and listening and trying to do everything they did to get better, and then you get a slap in the face with somebody who doesn't believe any of this. So those were challenging. And that 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 movement, so to speak, really didn't start dramatically until after the vaccine came out, because then we really had a divide of who believed in the vaccine, who believed in COVID, and who didn't. When you look back at that time, and I mentioned that in the, in the beginning, how it changed the world, and I think it did. When you look back at that time, are you still 
convinced that all of the protocols that were introduced, masks, vaccines, isolation, etc. Do you think that they worked generally or were there some that you now thinking through and looking back now that you have a little bit more, you never have leisure time, but looking back now retrospectively, do, well, that's a, that's redundant. Looking back on it, are you, are you convinced that all of those were necessary or was it just at that time, here's what we need to do? At that time, that was necessary. At that time, that was necessary because we cannot inundate the system any more than it already was. And, you know, it's interestingly, and I talk about this some in the book too, but we saw this weird paradox where we saw a decrease in the total number of patients in the hospital during that first, second surge. So we weren't at full capacity of all patients. People were distancing. They were staying home, not interacting. It raised the possibility, well, if we all leave each other alone, are we spreading things less? Our children's hospitals, you know, the analogy that's always used, it's like an amusement park, right? So they make their most revenue from patient care volumes in the winter and the fall. That's a seasonal thing when kids get the sickest. That first surge in 20 or the first winter, fall, winter, 2020 to 2021, pediatric volumes across the country were so down. And that's because we were distancing, we were masking, we were not interacting with each other. Everyone was homebound mostly or that, you know, there's a majority that were. So yes, before the vaccine, I 100% agree that all intentions were made with the right, that was the right thing to do. If it was presented again, almost in the same way, would you generally stick with those protocols? Because I would turn it on again. I would, I would. Now that we have a vaccine, it could be a little different how long we turn it on for or what we do. But I would, I would, I would do. I, I think that is the right thing to do. Not ideal for anybody, but I think for the sake of healthcare and humanity, I think it's the right thing to do. You seem like a relaxed guy, but reading your book, you are clearly type A. And uh, <laughs> you are balancing home life, family life, and professional life. Your wife is also a physician. And so you had that going for you, but you also had a newborn and you were taking some time off as well. And, and, and I'm sure regretting it in some ways as a professional, but really accepting it because you needed to be with your family. How did you handle, I, I know there are mental health challenges and if you feel free to discuss it, you do in the book, yeah. but it seems that I, I was reading, I just said, how does he, how does he handle that? Because if one thing goes wrong with me during the day, that's it for me for the day, but you obviously handle those constantly. And then during the pandemic on an accelerated basis. Yeah. And, you know, you said I'm a pretty laid back guy. And I think that's the way I'm perceived. But right. On the inside, I'm not. Right? <laughs> right. And that's how we are trained. It's true. That's how we are trained to remain composed. But it's always the people and that I personally think the people that seem the most composed and relaxed and are going to get through this and can roll from one fire to the other. The inside could be suffering. And that's one of the reasons, actually, Ira, that I wrote this book is because when I've shared this story as a one off with some of the others, they're saying, you you out of all people, you struggled? Come on, you have it all put together. And I said, no, I'm far, far from it. So, you know, I, I it, it's a challenge. Now, as I do describe all of those challenges, the go, 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 I think adrenaline fueled a lot of it, especially in that first six months, having a second child, jumping back into the wildfire of the pandemic. And part of it was exhilarating. You know, part of it was like, oh my gosh, I'm, I'm part of history. We're all healthcare heroes. The whole country shouting for us. We're getting all these signs and bells and whistles. This finally feels like people know what we're doing. And it felt empowering, which was great. It fueled us. But by that late summer of 2020, I realized that I was 
I was on fumes and a tipping point, And I talk about a few of these in the book probably, but one that comes to mind is my daughter who was homebound four years old at the time. She really wanted to ride her bike. She was learning to come off training wheels and my job was to teach her, which is great. But that afternoon when she was, when I was doing it and she was doing these few pedals without training wheels, it should have been the most exciting, fun afternoon. And it felt far from it. All I wanted was it to finish, get back inside and just move on to the next thing to get through the day. And at that point, not feeling joy there and faking it, I felt guilty. And I said, okay, something's terribly wrong here. I have to do something here. And that was a, that was a sign for me. And, you know, I, for better, I think I have enough insight to know that something was not right. There was a mood disorder creeping up here that may have been there before, but really at this point was declaring itself. Um, and as I talk about in the book, I, I went on a journey to do something. And the good news is you can still be functional. You can still be a doctor. You can still be a leader. You can still be a dad, a husband, all of that while doing this. And none of us are wrong for seeking help. I think the problem where healthcare workers, especially physicians in the front line, is that we are often so scared to seek help, admit that we have an issue, and do something about it because there's repercussions. There could be professional repercussions with my licensure, my credentialing, potential ability to practice. You're thinking, well, this just makes me like I'm an impaired physician. And you're not. You're not. So it really became a passion of mine, that whole human experience of wellness and burnout mitigation part of being a physician that really became a passion of mine. And that's another reason I chose to write this book at this point. And I think in addition to the general public, it would behoove those in the medical profession to read it because of exactly what point you're making. A lot of people in the medical community are very hesitant to come forward with any sense of vulnerability, even forgetting mental health for the moment, any vulnerability. It just seems that a lot of medical professionals have a godlike complex and don't want to admit that they're human like everybody else. They have knowledge, but they're also human, as you are, and I am, and everybody else. I'll share with you, you know, there's 400 physicians roughly a year that die from suicide, and Mm. I'm sharing this intentionally for a reason. Um, Dr. Lorna Breen was one of those who died in 2020 from suicide, and um, her family has started the Lorna Breen Heroes Foundation to help basically destigmatize mental health for healthcare workers, not only physicians, all healthcare workers, um, work on safe ways to seek mental health care and just destigmatize that whole thing. And that is such a worthy cause. I'll be donating all of my proceeds from this book back to this organization. But I'm also bringing this up is that when we had National Physician Suicide Awareness Day back in September, when we had um, some awareness around that, I hosted a campaign for it at my local hospital. And I will say 60% were really receptive and wanted to hear more about it. And this is physicians. And there was another 40% who were very uncomfortable. And that discomfort and awkwardness came out very passionately in different ways. Some would say, I've been a surgeon 35 years. I don't need this. If I got through surgical residency, I'm just going to be fine. And that's just the wrong attitude. Like We are not trained like that. Our bodies should not be trained like that. So there's still a lot of work to be done because when we hear comments like that, it's just saying, okay, we still have a mismatch in expectation and reality. You talk about a lot of different issues in the book. Mental health is one of them. You also talk about, and here's where I would take issue with you a little bit, you talk about, quote unquote, systemic racism. And I was reading that from my point of view, growing up in a multicultural background, a poor one, as a matter of fact. And I suspect that a lot of what's called systemic racism is really more 
someone noticing a different, a person who has something different about them, whether it's skin color, accent, whatever it happens to be, yeah. and reacting to it if they're not normally around people that are have a different accent or a different skin color, they react to it because they are, I don't want to say are new to it, but it, it, there's a discomfort because it's not part of their own quote unquote tribe, I guess I would use that term. And so I bump into people who are prejudiced or bigoted, et cetera, but I don't see it as systemic. And yet you referred to that in the book. So, and yet at the same time, you question it. So I, I give you points on that. You're, you're not sure about whether it is or isn't, but I, for example, you talk about your skin condition, which I, I'm not even about to pronounce because it's... Yeah, vitiligo. Thank vitiligo. you. Vitiligo. Yeah. Say it one more time. Vitiligo. Vitiligo. I was having problems with it. I figured I'd let you give the, the technical term. And you, you talked about in one case where somebody uh, noticed par parts of your skin. And what that is, it's a condition similar to Michael Jackson where you have a depigmentation. And you mentioned, that is what he had. That right. is what he had. Right. And yeah. so you referred, uh, you mentioned one patient that reacted to you and you, you could sense it. And, and rightly so, there's discomfort, but I don't attribute it to a issue of racism. I just, again, going back to what I said earlier, I attribute it to they're not used to somebody that looks a little different than them. And so they're going to initially react when they get to know you as a human being or as a doctor or, as what, or whatever, in most cases, clearly there are exceptions of people who just don't, don't get along with anybody. But once you get used to working with someone in a, or being treated by someone who is different, whether it's skin color, skin depigmentation, accent, hair is different, whatever it is, I think over time people get used to working in a melt, I'll use that old-fashioned term melting pot, which the United States mm. became thing I question with that, I respect your point on that, but the thing I question with that is in the relationship between a physician and a patient, that's, and that step doesn't need to be there both ways. So when I am seeing a patient and I'm looking at them, hypothetically, they're African-American um, and I can tell their health, health literacy isn't great. You know, what am I assuming about them and their background? To, is it going to be a barrier for me to give them care? How am I going to give them care effectively? Am I not going to do certain things for them that my next room who has a PhD, check Googling their iPad, checking everything I'm saying to them that I'm going to do for them because I know I need to be on my toes, number one. Number two, if I walk into a patient's room and they see me as a now white person and then they see my last name Desai, they're like, but you don't look Indian. What are they expecting <laughs> of me when I'm looking, when I'm supposed to look Indian? Am I having supposed to have an accent? Am I supposed to be smarter because I'm an Indian doctor? Like, what does that really mean? I mean, I share the example of my partner who's Muslim and wears a hijab, and she experienced significant racism from a patient during a very catastrophic situation. Um, and they, they just kind of wanted to push her away. And it's just, those, those are not acceptable things. So very sensitive topic, obviously, and there's multiple ways to look at the coin. But I think the point is, I'm sure we both could agree on that this is a real issue. And for me, the, you know, the George Floyd murder and the twin pandemic of racism that really erupted, especially in the South with the tensions that we felt, uh, it, it, it was a realization for me, whether that realization should have been there a long time ago, that can be argued, but that summer was very pivotal for me. But also, too, don't you think a lot of times you mentioned, you gave an example a moment ago, and you talked about the African-American patient and whether they would know certain things. Yeah. But isn't it really more, and this is the way I view it, I think it's more economic or class-based than anything else. In other words, if you have someone who grows up in a culture 
that reveres education or at least keeps people informed. You have mass media that can keep people informed about all kinds of health issues. If you have someone that comes in and is not aware of certain things, is that really racial or is it more just not being aware of something that's plainly available to everybody through mass media? Yeah, I think it can be racial if you're assuming the person is, they look, they're Black, so they're part of the Black community who does not have the right resources, and they don't know enough, and I'm just going to do this much for them. Well, what do you mean by the right resources? Because everybody can get access to radio, television, the internet. There are resources that are that are, are out there. I mean, you can't, you can lead a horse to water, but, but the point is you can, you're making an assumption that someone because of a certain skin color doesn't have the resources available to them. And I have met many people of various colors of various, I'll use the term classes or wait, working class, middle class, upper class, whatever you want to call it. You can and, also assume education level, right? Yes, what education true. level does this person have? Right? True, correct. And what am I going to do for them? Right. But at a basic level, I guess what I'm saying, doctor, is at a basic level, I'm calling you a doctor, and you told me not to, devolve is fine, and I'll go back to that. (laughs) But but I guess my point was that you have, you can have people who don't necessarily have a a college education, but they can stay informed. You you know enough by high school that, for example, if you're only eating chocolate, as I love, uh, then you're you're not really nutritionally sound. That yeah. doesn't require you're, a PhD. You're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. But what we've also found, and you know, this is two ways to look at it. But of course, these patients that don't. Yes, you could. There are tons of resources out there, but they don't know how to advocate for themselves. They don't know these resources that are out there. You're telling them what to do, and they're still not grasping at all. And our system is very complex. Our healthcare system is very complex, and you can get lost through the cracks very right. easily. And it's very easy to do that and kind of keep pushing a can forward without actually helping somebody. So if anything, if anything, I think a lesson learned here is that we have to advocate for our patients and the healthcare workers, the frontline has the ultimate power to do that. So I think that's the biggest lesson learned here too. And I I would agree with you that if you're a major hospital, you should be able to have someone help translate if a patient doesn't speak English. So they can communicate right. with their doctor and the doctor right. can communicate with them. Absolutely. Because otherwise they are isolated. But that's an issue of language, not basic education or basic common sense. But that's, we agree to disagree in some ways, but the book sure. still is a lot of fun. And not, I probably used the wrong term, a lot of fun. It was. No, so, look, I like being challenged. I like, this is a very healthy discussion. <laughs> exactly. For, yeah, we thank should. you for engaging me on that. Oh yeah, absolutely. And what I liked about it, I, when I said it was fun to read because there are moments especially on, your, on the family side that you write about that I thought was, were adorable, especially with the kids. What was your reaction to, by your wife to your decision, A, to write the book, and then B, once the book came out and reading it all the way through, what ha- how was that as well? So the two reactions, your decision to write the book and then your decision or then to read the book once it was done. She fully supported me writing the book, fully supported me with no issues there. Um, I think we both had a vision that she would probably look at the few chapters that I write in chunk and then help give feedback. That, for whatever reason, never worked out. Um, Just because of timing, the time of day I would write, the deadlines I'd put on myself with my publisher, my editor, it it just didn't work out. So what happened was that she she did not read any of the book until it was complete. Upon reading the book, she has enjoyed it. Majority of parts feels good. There was parts that she felt really like, kind of felt 
uncomfortable, not uncomfortable that I shared this information, but reliving some of those moments mm-hmm. as I wrote about it. Because she, you know, she had the harder job. She had a maternity leave caring for two small kids instead of one because our daughter was supposed to be in preschool. The pressures of being a new mom, going back to work. I mean, it, the list goes on and on. She had it harder. So, um, well, was and, she comfortable? Know, was she comfortable though with you sharing a lot of the the family not secrets? They weren't secrets. It was the, just the family no experience, right? Yeah, she was because she went through it just as much as I did. Um, uh-huh. I don't think I necessarily hid a lot of the things that were going to be really secretive. But if there were anything that I did not want to include, then I didn't. So yeah, I think you know her being a physician too. Her also being really passionate about taking care of physicians, the mental health, the wellness, you know, where, where the system is going when it comes to our healthcare workforce, we really need to take care of that. She's, she really understands and is right on board with that. If you look at the book in total, from your perspective, what would you want people to take away from the book? I, there are so many elements that you covered. And again, it's a fascinating read. I'm, I'm almost through with it. I, I unfortunately only got to chapter seven because of time okay. limitations, but I'm going to, going to I'm going to finish it because it is a, a great read. What sure. What do you want people to take away from the book? Uh, yeah. the most important, and it may be more than one point. Yeah, I think the big theme that I want people to take away, if anything, is that healthcare workers are people too. It is okay to be vulnerable. It is okay to not be okay. And we have to empower one another to get support and help when we need it. Um, and we really need to realize that. And then, you know, for our healthcare system to sustain and continue to thrive, which we're struggling with, we need the best of the best to retain as our healthcare workforce. Um, and if we don't take care of our healthcare workers, we are not going to have that system in a few years down the road. It's going to be tough. When you wrote the book, it was a, it's obviously a personal odyssey, but did you think when you were writing it that, oh, will there be people interested in reading about something that they would like to avoid? And I don't mean some of the major themes in your book, but really the the whole concept of COVID. In, in, yeah. I mean, yeah. You know, it's funny because it was one of the one of the barriers to actually probably getting this published is like, have people moved on from COVID and nobody wants to read about it? And that certainly is a real barrier. Here's the thing on that, though, as it turns more historical there's going to be a whole slew of new healthcare workers coming in, new students going into the pre-health area that I hope can really look at this also as a historical recount that this is what happened. And when, not if, when the next pandemic or major crisis happens in healthcare, we need to look back and say, look, we, we've actually been through this and we don't want history to repeat itself like it has in other crises and disasters. Maybe there's something we can learn and make sure we have learned from this. And do you think being humans, will we? I'm uh, cautiously optimistic. <laughs> I think if, yeah, I think, but no, in all seriousness, I think if we have more people willing to be vulnerable and share their stories and sort of not cover it up that everything's okay, I think we will be in a far better position. Well, that's a great way to leave it. My guest has been Dr. Deval Desai. He's author of Burning out on the COVID front lines. It's a doctor's memoir of fatherhood, race, and perseverance in the pandemic. It's published by McFarland and Company and available on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, and all the usual places. For everything about Dr. Desai, go to DevalDesaiMD.com. And that's spelled D-H-A-V-A-L, D-H-A-V-A-L, and Desai is D-E-S-A-I, D-E-S-A-I. And you can follow him on Instagram, X, LinkedIn, and Facebook. And Deval, thanks for being on the show. 
Thanks, Ira. And join us every Thursday for a new schmear on Ira's Everything Bagel.